0: He's making an effort to police himself lately, be more aware of his own thoughts, and try to flag the train down as it was leaving the station type of stuff, something one half of his brain was studiously contemplating when he found the other half back in the, if only I could get him to listen to these five minutes of podcast territory. Easier said than done on a long drive, but the book he'd been reading on meditation emphasized not getting frustrated with yourself when you stray, or worrying too much about how long you've been off on this or that mental tangent, but rather a realignment of your focus via breathing. He rewound the podcast several times and found that it had been three and a half minutes since he'd actually heard any of it, not that that mattered. Not as if they'd be having any heated political arguments this Thanksgiving anyways. They probably don't even let them listen to podcasts in prison. Harry had started meditating about a month ago and he could feel the beginner's zeal starting to seep out at the fringes, a familiar sensation but he was hopeful about his ability to stick with it, if not exactly optimistic, if he could incorporate it into his routine. If he could incorporate a routine, rather, and then he could incorporate the meditation into that. Sometimes it was hard to tell the difference between the difficult-to-hear-but-necessary truths and the self-fulfilling pessimism. He'd started eating smoothies around the same time, near daily at first, no conscious reason for it beyond a vague desire to quote-unquote eat better. He just had a strange burst of energy one day in the dead zone between lunch and dinner, and when he was done, decided that that would be a good thing for him to repeat every day, until the heat death of the universe or his own, whichever came first. Both were about as incomprehensible to him if he tried to think about either for more than a few seconds. And then one day, a few weeks ago, the last frozen blueberry skittered out of its plastic resealable bag and into the blender, And in the crystals of the phosphorescent ice chunks that came alongside, he had a vision of the future. He was not going to eat smoothies forever, probably not even till he died. His days of smoothie eating were not only numbered, but that number was countable on his fingers. As the days went by, he used the last of the mango, then the last of the strawberries, and smoothies simply stopped featuring mangoes and stopped featuring strawberries, just as they'd stopped featuring blueberries, until he was eating banana smoothies, and then of course the bananas ran out. And the prophecy was fulfilled. There was a market right down the street with a freezer full of frozen food, too. It's just... In fact, this habit of dedicating himself to failed habits over and over again seems to be the one habit that he could stick to, the one constant he could carry with him from year to year. He remembered, watch it, drifting a little, you're over the center line, pull it back now, nice and easy. Or maybe it would be more appropriate to say, imagined himself at 10 years old, and then tried to conceptualize the fact that there was an unbroken chain of days linking that person to himself, and that he'd been fully present and accounted for at every last one of them, without a single moment of respite, and through some alchemy of his choices, time, and genetics, he was the same person, allegedly, as this 10-year-old whom he could barely remember, let alone recognize, let alone conceptualize any kind of internal monologue for Two cars ahead of him jerked over onto the shoulder. Big problem, some jackass in a pickup, racing to pass. Had fudged the algebra somewhere. Harry fully awake now, though, for what it's worth. Highway stupor suspended for a few minutes. And you could hardly be blamed for having to rewind his podcast this time. Just 30 seconds, maybe another 30. Okay, try once more. Now he's on the shoulder. Come on, man. Eyes on the road. Wake up. Ice-cold sensation now traveling from his chest down to his stomach, betraying the practiced ease with which he glided himself back between the white lines, like he was going to convince the people behind him that he'd meant to nearly steer into a ditch. Deep breaths. Steady. Focus. Okay. Now you can check your phone. Still two hours to go. Christ. It was two hours forty minutes ago. He stared at the phone and waited for a single minute to tick off. It was like the minute was holding out or had stage fright. Couldn't dip to 1 hour 59 minutes while Harry was looking. Agony. The sun was beginning to set already. It did no good to fret over things he could not control, but Harry was finding it difficult not to indulge anyways. The podcast was talking about the Supreme Court now. When did they start doing that? Man, a husband in prison and a dead kid in a car wreck, snuffed out like a mosquito in a flash of squealing metal. That's just what his mother needed. Watch the road. What an undignified way to die, though. You have to be James Dean or Princess Diana to make that one sing. The pickup guy probably climbs into his truck every day and, if he's thinking about it at all, thinks other people die in car wrecks, not me. And did he witness his own death transpiring clearly enough then, just outside of his body in that moment pinned between a pickup truck and oncoming traffic, to realize that every other person who has ever driven a car has carried that exact line of thought right up to the moment in which reality finally does what reality always does and brings push to shove until the notion of exceptionalism is finally unsustainable? Did he see, in that moment, the oneness of all things? It's always someone else dead, death being something that happens to others, of course. Someone else's mangled car hauled away from the glass-strewn scene after their own corpse has been dragged away in an ambulance, or just standing ragged on the side of the road with a flat. Someone else's problem until it's yours, and then it's the pathetic and self-righteous outrage that no one else seems to realize the gravity of your problem enough to treat it as the crisis that it is. They just keep driving by, intentionally avoiding your gaze. Harry turned on the AC. That ought to buy him three minutes of alertness. Turned on a true crime podcast now, an hour fifty-seven to go. Muttering mostly intelligible threats to his poor carol as it rocked and jolted over the gravel road, swaying side to side so violently that he clipped his head on the driver's side window at one point. Incantations, half prayer, half curse, every bend in the road presenting a new rainwater-filled pothole that could be the one to swallow him whole. The ranger's station was closed when he arrived, his key left hanging on a hook by the door, and it took him nearly an hour to navigate the less than two miles to his cabin. By the time he arrived, it was already dark. For all he knew, he was the only one in the entire park. He hurried to start a fire in the wood stove, gathering little bits of kindling from around the property until his back ached, using his phone flashlight. It was all soaked, nothing bigger than a few twigs would catch, and then only for a few minutes at most more muttering, more curses, prayers which bordered on begging. He kicked the log pile and then fell back onto the little twin mattress, toe throbbing. After a few minutes he's back out to the car for a beer, which he sips laying in bed as he waits for sleep to take him, the light of his phone the only light for miles in any direction, the downloaded video's narrator droning on in monotone long after Harry has begun to snore. You simply take her cartridges and press them down into the magazine one after another like so. His father had bought a few acres of land up here and bought the lumber to build a little hunting cabin, but he never found the time to build it and sold the land before Harry was born. Still, he grew up with a reputation amongst the other boys in his school for being a sort of child marksman, a notion he never dissuaded them of despite his never having held a gun in his life. Not that his father ever kept his locked up or anything. But he carried with him a vivid memory of sitting on top of the stairs one night after bedtime, listening to his mother tell a friend on the phone about how some kid just a few blocks over had gotten a hold of a gun when his parents weren't home and shot his sister with it while they were playing, right there on the sidewalk, blew her right off her pink tassel-handled tricycle. Awful. Just awful. And it wasn't the craziest thing for a bunch of third graders to believe when, after all, Every day, Harry's father arrived to pick him up with a gun on his belt, which held their attention like an idol. Harry would also never tell them that it was just a taser, just as his father was never exactly forthcoming with the corrections whenever anyone referred to him as officer for the badge which he wore to assuage parents' potential fears about his belt accessorizing. It wasn't a police badge either, it was a security guard badge that he'd ordered on a website which normally specialized in customized mugs, but it wasn't exactly correct to say that he was a security guard either. His LinkedIn described him as a, quote, security specialist, which meant he was the founder and owner of a private security company. The taser on the holster had started, allegedly, as a bit of theater for client-facing meetings, but as far back as Harry could remember, his father had never really had any consistent contracts, or employees for that matter. It was curious that his father had bought that land and lumber, considering he'd never before or since expressed any interest in the outdoors or hunting. Harry visited him in prison a few months ago, looking for advice on hunting that he didn't really need or expect to receive. More of a thinly veiled and fruitless attempt to impress and, maybe, bond with the old man. You aren't going to make a chimp think more highly of you by doing algebra for it. First light of morning, blinking. Harry not normally an early riser, but then he couldn't remember the last time he'd gone to bed before 9pm, metal wire dangling over his bed amongst the dust motes, and bent menacingly upwards into a crooked hook, like a gnarled old finger beckoning. For the deer. Right, of course. He'd downloaded a few videos on dressing deer, the whole process once you're sure that it's dead, but it felt premature to watch them now. He had a habit of dressing up procrastination as productivity. He spent the morning looking for a spot to set up his blind. An annoying, misty kind of rain persisted until he was ready to come in for lunch, and all the squinting gave him a low-grade headache. Grabbed a case of beer from his car, started up the camp stove, then decided against it and made himself a couple peanut butter and jelly sandwiches while he contemplated leaving. No one else knew he was here. It was simply a matter of whether or not he could live with himself if he did. It was a long car ride back with very little to look at to tamp down the self-loathing. The sun burned away the clouds and created a pleasant afternoon, and Harry found himself wandering the woods with a nice little buzzing in his brainstem. He found a perfect spot to set up his blind, but decided that he'd never be able to carry a deer back from this distance, and so he went back and settled into a less perfect spot nearer to his cabin, rifle resting in his lap, and waited. He waited for a long time, and then longer still, fighting a losing battle to rein his own inner monologue into some kind of zen state. He waited so long that the forest either came to trust him or forgot he was there, and life began to fade back in. Birds singing, the chattering of squirrels racing along buoyant tree boughs overhead. He scanned the spaces between the evergreens, waiting for movement that never came. Legs stiff, sun on a terminal slide toward the horizon, Harry set the rifle back in the cabin and started walking with no particular destination in mind. After he'd been on the road for a while, he came to a trailhead, marked by a wooden signpost. Mount Nebo Trail, 6.8 miles. He took his headphones out and listened. No sound of cars, no distant construction. The wind gathering itself and rushing through the trees, like the tide of some impending inland sea. The aching groan of a towering geriatric pine. He was thinking about Gabe Henderson. Why? He picked through the nuggets that his brain had saved about the guy he was sort of tangentially socially connected to in school. They'd taken a computer class together once. Every day Gabe would wear his kicker's track jacket, a club soccer team whose roster had included Harry's name for nearly two weeks. Soccer was a little too European for Harry's dad, and a little too much running for Harry. The ground on the trail was soft, Harry's sneakered footsteps falling silent in the carpet of moss and dead auburn pine needles. He wasn't much of a hiker. He always went into these adventures hoping to reach some sort of communion with nature, or at least find the time to collect and sort through his thoughts, but more often found himself humming on repeat the same two verses of a song that he hadn't heard in 15 years, and counting every single step in a feedback loop of irritation. How much farther could 2.3 miles possibly be? Gabe Henderson had transferred school sophomore year. After his dad went to prison for embezzling nearly a million dollars over his stint as treasurer of the Bayview Kickers Youth Soccer Club, the local newspaper reported the story a week before Christmas break, and when classes resumed in the new year, Gabe had simply vanished. He came back a year later, when his mom could no longer afford the private school, and head down muddled his way through to graduation, which his father was let out of prison for the day in order that he might attend which made Gabe's mom pretty upset, apparently, on account of he had to be escorted and handcuffed by a guard. He tried to escape twice. And the guard came with, too, when he followed his wife hangdog up the aisle and out the exit. Whenever the applause died down after some especially popular graduate walked across the stage, you could hear her screaming at him through the double doors. The trunks of the trees up here seemed, to Harry, impossibly red. Those last two semesters of high school, as endured by Gabe Henderson, at least as measured in terms of paternal shame, were probably harder than anything he himself had been forced to endure over the past six months, right? Wasn't he supposed to be thinking of deep universal truths out here, or something? Like, at least he wasn't in high school for it, right? Thighs simmering already, he mounted another series of primitive log-reinforced steps and found himself on a gravelly overlook. For the first time since he'd set out, he could see over the tops of the trees a vista that gave him some crude sense of where he was in all this wilderness, and exactly how alone he was, and approximately how late in the day it was. About four fingers, at arm's length, from horizon to sun. That gave him, what, something like a half an hour, right? But he was so close to the peak he could sense it. The wise thing, of course, would be to turn back. No flashlight, no jacket. But then the wise thing is always to turn back isn't it there's such a thing as calculated risk and failing to reach the peak felt dangerous in its own right since compounding an afternoon of failure on top of a morning of failure tended towards establishing a pattern where there needn't necessarily be one he left his small pack water bottle printed slash unlaminated map gas station lighter against a large tree so as to lighten his load to the top Couldn't be more than a quick jog to the peak, taking the views, and a sunset to boot. Bolster the ego, then back down, hopefully enough phone battery to light his way back to the road. But if not, the moon should be about as bright as the night before, if not full. Was it waxing or waning? Either way, if he had to walk ten minutes or so in the dark, he felt that he could bear it. To his great relief and sense of vindication, Harry felt the trail, across a small stream and up one last set of switchbacks, beginning to level out beneath him, easing towards the conclusion. The shrouded pines thinned and then cleared entirely, and all at once there was someone else here, too, a man with his back turned, up ahead on the path, at the peak, sitting cross-legged on top of a stone foundation, for it had once probably been a small hunter's cabin not too dissimilar to what Harry was staying in. He turned when he heard Harry approach. Polite nod, curt smile. Harry approached the overlook, keeping his distance. Wave after wave of treetop here, crashing up beneath his feet, on fire with the setting sun, washed out over the sprawling hills to the horizon, broken only once by the red blinking eye of a remote radio tower, bobbing lost and helpless in the surf. Hello, friend. Harry turned to face the man. He had a friendly smile, A disposable, plastic-flapping rain poncho flipped up over his belt buckle in the exposed breeze of the summit. Hello. We're really out here, huh? Harry nodded. There were no cars parked along the road by the trailhead, no parking lots anywhere nearby, from his memory of the map. The trail was out and back, that much he knew. Only one route to the peak. No way the man could have passed him on the trail without his noticing, either. What were you listening to? Harry's headphones still dangling off his ears. Oh, it was just this, uh, true crime podcast. Harry, naturally, drifted a bit closer to the structure. Four low stone posts rising waist height above the elevated foundation. Head height for the seated man, though as Harry drew nearer to him, he could see that his legs were incredibly long, almost pointed. He smiled. That's my favorite. He took his hunting knife and pared off a slice of the fat summer sausage in his lap. What was it about? Little flecks of sausage landing in his gray-speckled asymmetrical goatee. Jack the Ripper? His smile turned sour, half-chewed meat bulging in his cheek. That's not true crime. Sure it is. It's true. It's a crime. Nobody likes a pedant. He stood up now, swallowing the sausage with some effort, and balanced uncertainly for a moment in the center of the structure like a monument, edges emblazoned with the last light of the day, before hopping down. True crime as a genre has a very well-established connotation. If you want to go by technicalities, then the sack of Baghdad would qualify as true crime as well, no? But we both know that's not what people mean when they use the term. Harry shrugged, stiffened in place. I don't know, it's just, it's it's not a genre I listen to often. I guess these guys, now pointing to his headphones, have a broader definition. Harry pulled out a smashed granola bar he'd stuffed in his pocket. The man in the whipping poncho closed the gap between them, hand outstretched. No, no, here, try this. You need something natural. Here, he cut off another piece of his sausage and tried handing it to Harry. Oh, No, no thank you, I'm okay. Something about the way the man had said natural instead of something like not processed hadn't sat well with Harry. Still, the man looked at Harry expectantly as if the message had not been communicated. Harry tore open the wrapper on his granola bar and the man, lightly but firmly, pushed Harry's hands apart. Really, I insist, it's very good and good for you. Lots of protein, and it's all natural. Harry pleaded with his mind for an out, but could come up with nothing, and so he meekly accepted the round coin of meat in his palm. The man in his poncho watched Harry take his first bite, expressionless, but fervent. Good, right? Harry nodded. Sun's moving fast. Harry nodded again, and then turns to see. Indeed it was. Shit. I should really get going, hand to cover, mouth still half full. Wouldn't you say the appeal of true crime isn't its immediacy? I mean, it doesn't have to all have taken place yesterday, but in a world that's at least recognizable to us, no? The thrill isn't how close it feels, wouldn't you say? Sure, yeah. Hey, where are you staying? Harry's brain went into overdrive, compelled by a looming sense that he could not afford to fuck this one up as bad as he had with the sausage. I'm uh going home. Got a long drive ahead of me. The man looked at the boy a moment before replying. Ah I've got a tent site another three and a half miles down the trail and a dead headlamp here. Had my fingers crossed, you'd say you had a warm little cabin just down the road somewhere or something like that. Harry let out a brief laugh, and then made a point of it to leave. Right then, he had to put some distance between himself and the man in the poncho. In that moment, nothing else mattered. He ran straight past his pack and didn't look back over his shoulder for what must have been fifteen minutes, and he didn't slow down until the trail started the rapid descent that meant he was almost at the road, and only then to briefly catch his breath for as long as it took for him to turn on his phone flashlight. He sat up in his little cabin twin bed sleeping bag bunched around his waist, listening for movement in the darkness, thinking about the man in the poncho and what he'd said. Had he meant anything by it? How would he have known? It could have just been a coincidence. He stared at his candlelit reflection in the night-black window. It was as though he was sending a beacon out into the forest, and so he extinguished the candles, leaving only a low fire in the stove for warmth. Without enough light to read by, Harry eventually fell asleep. The sun was shining when he awoke, and burned away the strange memory of the man on the mountain. With his oatmeal breakfast, he recommitted himself to bagging a deer before his rental on the cabin was up. No more shortcuts, he was determined to be prepared, and spent an hour after breakfast chopping up firewood on the stump outside of his cabin. He would no longer wait for the deer to come to him. It had rained overnight, and Harry soon picked up on a set of tracks in the muddy loam. Not that he knew the first thing about tracking, but how hard could it be? He followed them for nearly an hour before losing the trail entirely. Family would probably get the news about his dad sporadically over the next year or so. Friends maybe over the next five. That was how it went, being out of school, never seeing anyone unless absolutely forced to. He'd spend the rest of his life explaining why his dad was in prison. Gabe may have had it worse having to face all of his teachers and all of his friends every day at school, but Harry didn't think anyone could deny that his father's crimes were far harder to discuss in polite company. Deer. Sixty. Maybe seventy yards away. Two of them, in fact. Harry crept as close as he felt he could get, about fifty yards, and then squinted down his scope. Hands trembling a bit, wind scraping at his raw knuckles. He didn't even look to see if one of them had antlers. Just chambered around and aimed. Not too stiff. Steady breathing now. Squeeze, don't pull. Squeeze, don't pull. On the exhale now. And... Rifles report, whistling across the sky. The birds scatter, and so do the deer. Is it even limping? Harry trudges over to investigate and doesn't find a drop of blood. It doesn't take him long, though, to find another set of tracks, which he follows, determined, for about a mile before once again losing the trail. Only now does he look up, lift his head from the ground, and realize how disoriented he is. Skyward leaden graphite wall of clouds closing in with alarming speed, and an abyssal navy sky in tow. Harry puts his head down and begins plowing through the undergrowth, back the way he came, determined to will himself out of this. He picks out bits of familiar scenery as he goes, trying to quell the rising desperation. He'd been on a trail for a while, if he could just find that trail, that should get him out to the road. Once again, he'd left his headlamp behind, because apparently the only habits he couldn't break were all the dipshit ones. Soon he was pathfinding in the rain. Night encroached stealthily under the cover of the storm. And soon, though he'd eventually found the trail, Harry found himself walking in the rain and the dark and struggling to keep on it. Finally, finally, he saw the dark silhouette of his cabin up ahead. He looked in the window as his shaking hands attempted to unlock the door, the glow of a few hot coals in the belly of the stove. Still, he'd been gone all day. He was grateful enough to start a new fire in his current condition, but as he entered, he couldn't shake the feeling that unmistakable. He scanned the dark corners of his cabin. As Harry's eyes adjusted to the gloom, he found that he was, indeed, alone. He locked the door, stoked the fire. He could barely bring his fingers to bend, staring into the flames. At least he got a shot off today, right? I mean, it wasn't much. It was nothing. He'd have to be a prodigy to expect to pull off a clean headshot at that distance. First time shooting a gun outside of a range. Another Buddhist tenant. It is important not to have unrealistic expectations. Something just above the sound of the rain patter on the windows. High-pitched, sort of wavering as if it were carried on the wind. Not quite a whistling, but... Harry cupped his hands to the glass and peered hard into the night. No good. So he straps on his headlamp and ventures out into it, out where the sound is clearer, where he can almost make out the sound of someone playing a flute just at the edge of hearing. The beam of his lamp soon finds someone out there amongst the trees, amongst the murk and downpour. A park ranger, as tall and narrow as a sapling, standing with his back turned. Caught in the light, he turns to face Harry. He smiles eye twitching under the assault of the rain, steady drip of water from the wilting brim of his hat, frozen in the cold LED light, the man from the mountain. Harry turns, runs, straight through the door, locked and latched behind him. The outside world is further obscured by the moisture on the glass, and at first Harry thinks the man has dissolved into the forest. A polite knock sets Harry's heart to pounding. The man waves, very friendly. The door is locked. The screen door is latched. The windows, to his knowledge, don't open. Hey, it's me. Remember? Hello. I thought you said you were going home. Figure of speech. Could you let me in? It's really coming down out here. Sorry, I should really get to bed. Long hike tomorrow. The man cupped his own hands over the window now to get a better look inside, his breath fogging the center pane beneath his darting eyes. Were you chopping wood earlier? I thought I heard you. Harry did not answer. Just noticed that you left your axe out here is all. I'm worried it'll get rusty. Heart sinking. Hope that the guy is a naive idiot or maybe disturbed but harmless, fading. But the cabin door is more of a formality and a viable defense against a determined axe, so Harry lets the ranger inside, hoping to keep things non-violent long enough to find an out. The man finds his way towards the center of the cabin, leaving a small stream on the floor in his wake, bubbling and bursting amber with reflected firelight. His mud-soaked boots, and they appeared to be women's riding boots, as if he'd pieced together his outfit with whatever available amalgamations, clunked like dead weight on the dirt-pocked wood floor. He stood in front of the stove for a long time, gazing into the fire, and then raised and dropped his shoulders with a loud, theatrical sigh. It really makes you feel how small we are, being out here, especially when a storm like this rolls in. How vulnerable, how at the mercy of nature. And yet, somehow it's nature that's endangered by us queer, isn't it? Very. It's really something up there on the mountain, huh? Yeah, great view. Harry eyes his gun, maybe a lunge and a half away leaning up against the far wall in the shadows behind the stove, but it's in the case. That's another beat to unzip it if he doesn't fumble with the zipper at all. Then to chamber around? Is it even loaded? How long would it take the man to make one swing of an axe? What does it feel like to have the back of your head split open along your brainstem like a pumpkin in that half a moment before all feeling flashes out? Your way out here in a place that hasn't changed, more or less, for hundreds of years, thousands even, sort of makes your mind wander, doesn't it? All the sameness of the trees, mile after mile, all different, but all the same. It makes me think about what it would have been like hundreds of years ago. Because the canvas is right there, isn't it? Right there for your mind to paint wonderful, terrible things upon. Makes me think of a time when we didn't live in a world already bent to our needs. Makes you imagine how you'd live in a world that bent you to it. It's not like being in a big city where every trace of the before time has been cast into oblivion. No. No. You could picture yourself living in a small little town near here, couldn't you? Just picture it. Maybe a few dozen, maybe a hundred people at most outside the woods. In their little houses just at the base of our little mountain. Little plumes of smoke rising from the dusky chimneys. Harry quickly took stock of what he'd be leaving if he made a run for it, assuming he could get in his car and go without the man landing a blow on him. Mostly some food, old clothes, a sleeping bag. Different anxieties, different fears Totally different way of relating to the world And yet They were still basically us, you know Somewhere, I think Somewhere deep in us We can still understand Understand that fear What it was like I mean, certain people Sure, you see them at the general store What have you I'm sure it was easy enough to dismiss them as crackpots, ignore them. But you heard the whispers. You grew up hearing the stories. a night like tonight, late fall, short, harsh days. Trees stripped to their skeletons by the bitter winds, whining and whimpering all night through the cracks in your primitive window. Night like tonight, well, frankly. It'd be hard not to wonder, you know. You wake up in your bed, chill, some lonely, lonely hour of the night, when surely you are the only one left awake for miles and miles around. You look outside and, up there, on the peak of the mountain, how miserably cold it must be up there. You can see a light, a bonfire, not big, but big enough to be visible down here, down in the town, where things are normal. And when the wind blows just right, you can hear it too. The whooping, the laughing, the gaiety, the ancient, terrible chanting of some nameless tongue. Tell me that doesn't send a chill down your spine. Can I, can I get you anything to drink? No, thank you. Uh, I've got more beer in the car. I'll be right back. The park ranger smiled and nodded politely, as if to give permission. And Harry took it, left, even grabbing his gun after an unconvincing show of shuffling around some nearby firewood. The man said nothing. Harry waited to look back until he was at his car. There was nobody following him. The cabin was still, white smoke pouring out of the smokestack wind whipped up and away, dissolved into the starless sky. You couldn't see the man through the window from this angle. And even after he started his car, the man stayed inside the cabin. Harry kept his eyes on the door until the light of the cabin had blinked out entirely amongst the trees, crowding his rearview mirror. Half a tank of gas got him plenty far away from the cabin, though he waited until it was nearly empty to stop, and even then he couldn't shake the pounding in his chest. Thirty minutes till sunrise and a cold, Foul wind snapping between the pumps, warmly saxophone rattling away, and the tinny speakers slung overhead. The sunrise felt good, did wonders for Harry's soul. His mind drifted, almost home now, and still no other cars on the road. Back in cell service, he was inundated with a series of missed texts, mostly from his mother. The latest was a link to a list of local therapists. No kidding. What therapist wouldn't want to see him? He really ought to have them all put in bids on the contract. Well, Doc, I suppose neither of us is really going to be able to take the other seriously if we don't cover the hits up top. So why don't you just stop me anytime you want me to clarify anything? As, I guess, his version of a midlife crisis, my dad decided one business wasn't enough and bought another LLC. Don't know why he needed to do that, but he did. This one for another company he was going to start and run by himself, a real owner operator entrepreneur in the purest American tradition. And what else would you expect a certified security operator to do for his business but travel around the country lecturing and giving educational presentations to police departments about that's right, you guessed it child pornography? weeks of exhaustive online research into the vast underground networks producing and distributing the stuff and whole terabyte hard drives full of sample material for slides and demonstrations obviously obviously what to look for i guess that sort of thing signs to be alert of which all led up to his arrest and conviction for possession of child pornography which the activist prosecution, apparently, somehow proved was only half for the business, which I guess makes the other half personal property. I think he felt really betrayed, mostly, by it all. My dad, that is. He couldn't stop trying to buddy-buddy up to the cops that arrested him. Like, come on, man, we're both LEOs here, type of stuff. Really embarrassing. But, if I was trying to do your job on myself, I guess... There's something in that failed, last-place-they'd-ever-think-to-look logic of the whole scheme, which is somehow, in all of this, I think, the thing that makes me really feel like probably I'm just a doomed person, if that's the genetic deck of cards that I'm working with, so to speak. That and a dad with the same last name who holds the record for most child pornography ever seized by the state. Wait, what were they saying on the podcast? He rewound a few times. He'd actually been invested in this before he got carried away in his little reverie. The whole point of putting this show on was to keep him firmly grounded, less likely to drift off. Just then, a deer jumps out in front of his car, not five minutes from his house, middle of the middle of suburbia, time of impact 623 AM. Harry does manage to slam on the brakes, and he skids into it, burning rubber already plumbing the depths of his nostrils as he slams through the dough. Her spotted fawn darts lankily off into the nearest dew-soaked backyard. Harry climbs out, podcasts still blaring from his speakers, finds the doe pinned under his front tire, thrashing around. He doesn't think, only takes the rifle from the back seat, chambers around, and takes aim at the deer's head. His eyes instinctively squeeze shut in anticipation as he pulls the trigger. Ricochet off asphalt, deer still lurching around. Chambers another round, fires. It kicks weird, throwing off his aim. The round lands in the deer's snout, smashing into an unrecognizable pulpy mess, though it doesn't kill her. One more shot. Harry hits her just below the eye, and the animal is stewing still. Three shots then, still echoing around block after block of vinyl siding. The deer twitches a bit and Harry, exercising an abundance of caution, shoots it once more, this time in the torso, right where the chestnut fur begins to turn white. This neighborhood hasn't seen four shots fired in anger since the French and Indian War. Birds chirping, coffee makers just working themselves up into a boil. A woman steps out onto her front porch in bathrobe and curlers. Jesus Christ, she shouts. What the fuck is going on?